I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. When we put out our call for questions a few weeks back, many of you wrote in asking about mRNA vaccines. How safe are mRNA vaccines really? How does the vaccine know where to go in your body? And how long does the mRNA stick around for? To answer these questions and a whole lot more, I spoke with the mother of gene-based vaccines, Dr. Margaret Liu. I'm one of the pioneers of gene-based delivery for vaccines, and so as part of that, I'm on the drafting group for the World Health Organization, the WHO's efforts to write guidelines for mRNA vaccines. Before we dive into the science of mRNA vaccines, just a quick Bio 101 refresher. You probably remember that our body needs proteins to do, well, just about everything. They regulate our digestion and sleep. They even allow us to move. And the recipe for every protein in your body is stored in your DNA. But you don't need to cook up every recipe all at once. You want to make specific proteins at specific times. That's where messenger, or mRNA, comes in. It's a copy of a recipe that gets sent out when you need to make a specific protein. And from there, that becomes the message, the code, that helps your body make protein. So it's sort of like understanding the the Morse code and being able to translate into letters that we know of and therefore into words, which are sort of like proteins. With mRNA vaccines, you're giving a person the recipe for a specific viral protein. For a short time, your body will cook up the protein, teaching your immune system what the virus looks like and how to fight it. But the important point here is that you're not actually coding for the whole virus. So this mRNA itself is not infectious. In other words, it can't make a a coronavirus itself. Essentially, what we're delivering is a piece of mRNA that codes for part of the spike protein, which are those proteins sticking out of the coronavirus, right? That's right. And in fact, if it seasonally, you could think of it as it makes a decoration on the Christmas tree. It doesn't make the whole Christmas tree. There is one issue with mRNA, though. You take the mRNA itself, which actually is very unstable. Turns out that it, it is degraded quite quickly everywhere, inside the body, outside the body. Scientists recently figured out a pretty clever way to ensure that mRNA doesn't disintegrate before it gets into your cells. They shove the mRNA inside this tiny bubble of fat, which is called a lipid nanoparticle. And then your cells slurp up the fat bubble. I like to think of it as sort of like having a coating on an M&M. So you've got chocolate that if you hold the chocolate in your hand, it'll melt. But if you now put this coating around it, it makes it uh, so that it's more stable and you can carry around the M&Ms in your hand. And so it's delivering it in this case to, is it muscle cells that it's delivering it to? Yes, these are intramuscular injections. So it's not like putting it in your bloodstream and having it go everywhere. It pretty much is injected into the muscle. But what is known is that in fact, some of the cells that do take up the mRNA are in fact cells of your immune system. And this is important because you want to have uh, the protein produced, but some of the cells of your immune system, if they are the ones making the protein, they actually are even more efficient 
at producing the type of, uh, resulting in the type of immune response that you want. To build on that also, are there any problems with um, the mRNA being produced in certain cells? Is it co-opting a function in those cells so they're not producing something that they actually need? If you think about how your body normally functions, you normally make many, many proteins at the same time. So in fact, your cells all have to keep making many different proteins to keep functioning. So it's not as if the uh, mRNA comes in and necessarily takes over all of the protein that's being produced. On the other hand, if you actually have a viral infection, sometimes the, a, a virus as opposed to the mRNA does t make so many different proteins and takes over so much of the cell's machinery that some, some cells actually end up dying when you have certain viral infections. All this protein production happens inside of cells. But if the spike protein gets produced in a muscle cell, how do your immune cells meet the protein to learn how to fight COVID-19? How does the spike protein get out of your cells after it's been produced? Any protein that is coded for by, by the mRNA, you can design them to go different places. So you can actually uh, design them so that they are secreted, and that's by putting a little tag on the actual protein. So it's like a, a set of conveyor belts at a factory, you know, where some things get shuttled down one conveyor belt, some go down another conveyor belt. And those can be designed into the sequence of the protein. How long does the mRNA typically stick around? What has been found is that, in fact, most of the mRNA disappears pretty rapidly. And the longest that has been observed uh, by one study was that they found a small amount that still lasted out to about 60 days and then was gone. Those 60 days Dr. Liu is referring to, that was for a study on a rabies mRNA vaccine done in rats. And to be clear, that's not the length of immunity to the virus. That may last well into the future. It's just how long the mRNA itself was still found in the body. So this is actually perfect for a vaccine because it goes into some cells and most of them are at the site of injection and then it makes the protein, but then it itself doesn't last very long. And so you end up making enough protein to get your immune response, but you don't have it hanging around for a really long time. You know, I think there's a lot of fear with these vaccines that, you know, they're new. We've never actually licensed an mRNA vaccine in humans before. You're a pioneer in this field, and I'm curious how long you and other scientists have actually been studying gene-based vaccines. So this concept of, of actually being able to use the mRNA as a vaccine and then DNA vaccines was first published in 1990 in the journal Science, very reputable journal. And so this really opened up the field and people started evaluating this for gene therapy and we started working with them for vaccines. So it's been since 1990, so exactly 30 years. So actually quite a long time. It's not like this is a totally new thing that no one had ever thought of until last year. <laughs> that, that's correct. What, 
What happened for specifically for mRNA, though, has been more recent because of this problem of the mRNA falling to pieces all the time. But people kept plugging away at mRNA, and there have been some developments, both in terms of trying to stabilize the mRNA, but also in terms of these lipid nanoparticles that help protect them and help them get into cells better. That's why only now does it seem that um, it, it's coming to some fruition, because this is the first time that mRNA will be used in vivo for vaccines. Is the lipid nanoparticle the reason why this is the first time we're seeing an mRNA vaccine used in humans? I think there are probably a couple of reasons why we're only now seeing the mRNA vaccines. Uh, the first is that they have been in humans before for a few years. They just were in very early phase one, maybe phase one, two studies. But there have been big developments, both in terms of stabilizing the mRNA, but at the same time, there also have been advances in terms of the lipid formulations that then both protect it better uh, and help the mRNA in this particle form get into cells better. Are there any safety considerations we've seen with mRNA vaccines that are different from what we've seen from classic vaccines? Making a vaccine is kind of a Goldilocks proposition, which is you need to have immune stimulation, but not too much. And so you have to get it just right. And so that is, that's actually what the challenge is for any vaccine, doesn't matter what the technology is. So in that sense, mRNA vaccines, although they use a different technology, have the same challenges that almost every other, well, that every other vaccine technology has but they're safer than certain vaccine technologies. So, for example, some of the earliest vaccines used a live virus, but that was weakened. For tuberculosis, it was a similar but weakened strain. And so the challenge there was to make sure you had weakened it enough. And so mRNA doesn't have that particular challenge because it's not a live virus and you cannot get COVID from the mRNA vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine has four types of ingredients. mRNA, obviously, fats, salts, and sugar. Everything a top chef would use to create immunity. While the mRNA is the key bit, each of the other components plays an important role in getting the vaccine to work properly. As Dr. Liu said, the fats, or lipid nanoparticles, help get the mRNA into your cells. The salts, which include regular table salt, help keep the acidity of the vaccine at a similar level to our bodies. And just a spoonful of sugar helps the nanoparticles keep from sticking together. This is a pretty simple vaccine at the end of the day. There's mRNA, and then there's these lipids that go around it. So it's not like uh, some vaccines that are much, much more complex. Complex like many flu vaccines, for example, which are derived from eggs. So people with egg allergies may need to be monitored for any allergic reactions after receiving the flu vaccine. But since mRNA vaccines are so simple, it's really rare that people will be allergic to their ingredients. In Pfizer's most recent clinical trial, nearly 19,000 people received the vaccine, and just one person had an allergic reaction to it. But the trial didn't include people who'd had severe allergic reactions to vaccines before. 
As of this week, with the administration of more than 10 million doses of both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, there have been at least 29 reported cases of a type of allergic reaction called anaphylaxis. That's about three cases of anaphylaxis per million vaccine doses administered. Nobody knows exactly what has caused that, but the thought is because of the type of allergic responses that at least some of them had, is that they think that it may be something in the vaccine. Well, it's probably not going to be the mRNA. And although most people, obviously, in the trials haven't had any problems, they're thinking that maybe there was something that is is one of the lipids that might be causing an allergic type of reaction. The lipid that might be causing the problem is called polyethylene glycol, or PEG for short. PEG hasn't been used in an approved vaccine before, but it's pretty common in drugs. And it has been known to cause anaphylaxis in some people. The thing is, PEG is everywhere. It's in shampoo. It's even in your toothpaste. And the people who went into anaphylactic shock after receiving the vaccine surely brushed their teeth. However, the NIH is undertaking a study to investigate the cause of the few cases of allergic reactions that have occurred. Still is not a very great incidence of people, but it is why they are asking people to stay around for 15 minutes at least after they've gotten the injection. I think it's also worth noting that in there have only been, as you mentioned, very, very few cases of severe allergic reaction reported so far. And there's a risk of anaphylaxis with many vaccines that people already take, even though it's extremely rare. Like, I think the yellow fever vaccine has a risk of anaphylaxis that's like one in 100,000. We don't hear about that because there isn't a global yellow fever pandemic. But we're, of course, paying attention to any single time that anything happens after somebody gets a a vaccine right now. I think you're raising a good point. I think that, in a sense, it is sort of like when there's an airplane crash, for example. We, uh, We all notice it, and it makes people concerned about flying, even though we ignore the huge number of fatalities from car accidents because we're just sort of more used to that. doesn't mean that it's okay that people are dying either way. Likewise for vaccines, while the risk-benefit ratio for any licensed vaccine is always in favor of benefit, hugely in favor of benefit because you're going into healthy people. And so they only would get approved if the benefit vastly outweighs any risk. But just as some people end up with certain diseases and they don't know how they get it, some people do end up with having um, some kind of reaction to a vaccine. I, I think I know the answer to this already, but will you be getting the vaccine? I am looking forward to getting the vaccine. Having said that, Uh, Because I can work from home and um, I have a whole family full of physicians who are out there uh, putting themselves at risk every day, uh, I actually want them and first responders, people in unfortunately often many times low paying jobs but who can't not work and are encountering the public. And then obviously older people who are at such high risk, they all should get the vaccine before I do. So I'm willing to keep staying at home and doing things like having to have my son's wedding via Zoom where nobody was there and we just all were on Zoom. But that's worth the trade-off to try to protect other people in their lives. 
I should mention to the audience that I'm speaking to Dr. Liu on uh, Saturday because yesterday she was celebrating with her son um, for his wedding all day. So <laughs> we're very lucky to get the chance to speak with her. And it was actually a fantastic global event because it meant so many more people could join in because nobody could travel. And so, so everybody could participate. So it was great. I highly recommend it. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Sinduja Srinivasan. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. A quick correction. In our last episode, we heard from Dr. Warner Green, who's a virologist with the University of California, San Francisco, not the University of San Francisco. Thanks again to everyone who sent in great questions. Dr. Liu was really impressed. So thank you for asking such fantastic questions and for your audience who have obviously submitted some of the questions too. You must have a great audience. Yes, we, we love our audience very much. <laughs>